Where do you go for the most important conversations in applied behavior analysis? The podcast is your source for insightful content, debate, and insights in the ABA field. Whatever your role, RBT, BCBA, C-suite, family member, or advocate, we'll get you to the heart of the meaningful issues in autism. Podcast is proudly hosted by the Council for Autism Service Providers. We are your hosts, Nagarito, Judith Urcity, Ali Respondent, Natesh Kumar, and Jonathan Mueller, and this is our podcast. Natesh, Hallie, and I got to um, have a fun interview with one of our favorite podcast hosts, Judith. Judith is such a, a beautiful soul. If you've met her before, um, she's always collected and calm um, in the midst of chaos. Um, in such a very common way. We got to hear a little bit about her life, about her beautiful son, Jack, and her beautiful daughter, Amy. Um, and Natesh, tell me what you learned about her that you didn't know already. Yeah, it was, you know, speaking with Judith has always been eye-opening and insightful because it really puts to home what we do and why we do what we do, giving the parent um, perspective. Not only that, but all the stuff she does, all the work she does in the autism community, but just learning about her journey and Jack's journey through the start of their life and all the trials and tribulations they went through, plus where she's come from today. So it's really exciting. It's a really great listen, and I hope you all enjoy it. Good morning. Today we have Judith and we're going to learn a lot about her and her background of how she got into the space and um, how, why she's so impactful on um, the community and how great she is as a person. So Judith, can you give a little background <laughs> about yourself and, and kind of how you got into the space and why you're here doing what, all the amazing things that you do? Oh my gosh. Well, first um, fun fact of the morning is that um, when I went into the bathroom this morning, um, I was kind of halfway paying attention and I looked in the toilet and there was a little mouse in there looking back at me. So, yeah. <laughs> so that got me awake for the week. Um, so anyway, I guess it's important to know from the beginning. I think mice are very cute. Um, but Did you leave Texas to get away from the mice? I don't like them. No, no. Yeah. No, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're actually bigger in Boston, by the way. I've seen some. Really they're big. round and big. Yeah, it was a little scary. So they're um, the exterminators here and he's very nice Ooh. going around like plugging up all the holes and everything. But I am Natasha, as you said, I'm a Texan. Um, I grew up in a little town outside of Seguin, Texas. Um, my high school was a public high school. Navarro High School, go Panthers. Um, and there were 30 people in my graduating class, public high school. So small farming town. I grew up with my grandparents. My granddad was a Pearl Harbor survivor. Um, I grew up um, getting my health care through the military. So lots of time at like Fort Sam Houston and Randolph Air Force Base. I grew up in that area, San Antonio and Austin. So I'm a Texan through and through. Um, I went to college and majored in accounting. I didn't really love accounting, but I love shoes. And I thought I could have a good job, you know, and buy the shoes that I like. Um, but there was definitely not a lot of passion in that decision. It was more practical. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. Um, so it was, you know, just a big step for our family. Um, anyway, um, I ended up... Um, Married with a couple kids. My husband, Andy, and I um, lived in five different states in 10 years, in the first 10 years of our marriage. Um, he works in corporate finance, so every time his company would merge, we would move, and he would work on the integrations. So um, we lived in Texas. We lived in um, Atlanta, Georgia. We lived in, in between Baltimore and D.C. for a while. We spent four years in Chicago. That's where Jack was born, um, in Chicago. Um, and then we lived in a town called South Lake, Texas, which 
there's another podcast about South Lake that if you want to like listen to something really juicy about a Texas town, um, listen to the South Lake podcast because it's very fun. I didn't know you lived in South Lake. Yeah, um, we lived in South Lake, and that's where Jack, when he turned two, was diagnosed um, with autism. Oh, I, and the, I, I lived there too. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you lived in South Lake? You lived in yeah. the Green Bubble? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's. I live, my tech. parents still my parents my parents still live in South Lake, but I had I built a house in South Lake and then moved out of there. Sorry to interrupt. Oh my you. gosh! Wow. Oh. Well, we lived in what's the name of the? Shoot, I'm totally blanking on the place where everybody lives in South Timuron? Lake. Timuron. Yes, we lived yeah. in Timuron. Um, we started kindergarten there, um, and then when Jack turned two, um, our pediatrician. Um, she was actually in Grapevine. Her name was Elizabeth Dickey, and she was this old school pediatrician. She wore Birkenstocks. You know, she was just very warm and fuzzy, and she was also really honest. And so when Jack turned two, she did a routine developmental screening on him. Um, and I'll never forget it because he was sitting there on my lap, and he was two, and she asked me how many two-word phrases he had, and I said none. And she asked me if he pointed and I said, no. And she asked me if he could wave goodbye. And I said, no. And every time I said no, I thought, oh, this probably isn't good. And I had um, the parent books. Like I had, when I was pregnant, I read What to Expect When You're Expecting. And then when I had my kids, I read like What to Expect the First Year, which every chapter talks about like, this month your child should be doing X, Y, and Z. And so I had those books, but they're really at that point in time, this was like in the early 2000s, there just wasn't a lot of recognition about autism. And I didn't know a single thing about autism other than I had seen Rain Man, you know, when I was a kid. Um, but our pediatrician was wearing her Birkenstocks sitting on her little round stool and she scooted over and we were like knee to knee. And she said, there's something going on and we've got to find out right away. So she scheduled Jack for an MRI the next day, actually, which kind of freaked me out because we knew he wasn't talking and he walked late. Um, but I just thought, oh, he's a boy, you know, like it's fine. I had many friends, you know, who kind of were in the same circumstance. Their sons were talking later, things like that. So I wasn't, I was a little concerned, but I just made the assumption that everything was going to be okay. Um, but anyway, um, Within a couple of weeks, we had been referred to a pediatric neurologist in Dallas at the Children's Hospital. And um, he spent like five minutes with Jack and diagnosed him with autism, you know. So it was really very quick. And at that point in time, it was pretty devastating because we didn't see it coming and we didn't know anything about it. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how it all started. Wow, Judith, um, thanks for taking us on that journey with you. Um, I'm sure that's a day that sticks out in a lot of parents' minds. Mm -hmm. um, I think almost as much as the day I was told, oh, yeah, you're pregnant, like, or the day you find out, right? Um, yes. And everything flashes in front of you, like, and you know nothing will be the same again. That's like a marker that forever or forwards changes you. Um, what would you say to parents who, I feel like as moms, we always know, like there's always that something, even if you don't know what it is, there's always that something that bonds us to our children, whether they're our biological or adopted or claimed children, right? There's, there's that something there. And um <clears throat> We can do a whole other thing about healthcare and the lack of respect and the disrespect to women and mothers of all <laughs> kinds, especially in misrepresented and represented groups. Um, but knowing that there is something there and either being afraid to say something or being afraid to find out the what and and being afraid of blaming, being blamed for it or not having the answers for it. What would you say to those those parents who are sitting there today, blaming themselves, questioning themselves, questioning their sanity, um, and even the ones who's heard the news and they don't know what that next step should be? Is 
it's life over. It, life will never be the same, but in what way? What should they right. expect, right? What would you say? If you could go back and say that to yourself, what would you say to those people? Well, I think my experience was definitely one of my initial response was selfish fear, honestly. Um, I just had this feeling of entitlement. I had had a pretty traumatic childhood. Um, my dad was married six times. My mom was married five times. Um, I had a lot of trauma in my childhood. My dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor when I was like in third grade. Um, and he had died, you know, um, a few years later. And so it was just a lot, you know, both my sisters were pregnant in high school. Like my brothers had drug issues. Like I felt like I had been exposed to lots of different traumas, you know, and I had worked really hard and gone to college and like established my family. So I had this feeling of entitlement, like I've got it together, you know, I'm going to do it right. You know, I love my family. It's going to be okay. But what we know is there are no guarantees, especially with health and with, you know, anything in life, employment, you know, it, it's a ziggy zaggy kind of experience. Um, but I felt really entitled. And I just remember thinking, um, I'm not a big public crier, but I did start crying when the neurologist told me that Jack had autism and I was trying not to, I was trying to hold it together. Um, and I remember him saying to me, like, well, didn't you know? Um, and looking back now, I think, yeah, you know, it was super obvious. Like Jack was very obviously on the autism spectrum, but I didn't know, you know? And so for me, that was the, the big lesson. And I want to share that with other people. First of all, it's not your fault. Um, and don't feel bad if you don't really know. I mean, parenting, there are so many things to think about. Um, there are so many different philosophies, um, so many different expectations. So I think we all do our best to be informed and we work with our healthcare, you know, system. And so I think, you know, we all in that situation for the most part do the best we can. Um, and you can't do anything. It cannot be your fault because we don't know, no matter what people say on Twitter, <laughs> we don't know what autism is. We do not know the biology of autism. I have this book on my desk, DSM, and there's some criteria in here. And if you check all the boxes, you have an autism diagnosis, but you can't do a blood test. You can't do an MRI. If you talk to scientists, researchers, the most preeminent people at INSAR, they will use phrases like, well, we think, or there's a theory, but the human brain is super complicated. Um, and so no one really knows what autism is. So if we don't know what it is, how can it be our fault? <laughs> like, we don't even know what it is. So I think just give yourself grace and then think about your child as the individual they are they're still the same person. Um, and then work within your educational system, your healthcare system, your community. And they all look very different across the United States and around the world. Figure out what you can access, what works, and take it from there. But just take it a step at a time. That's a lot of advice. But <laughs> That's fantastic, Judith. Thanks. Um you're such a gift. You, you're always so just quick to give, so willing to give. There are very few people in the world like that, and you happen to be one of those special people. So thanks for being so given of oh, everything thanks. you are. Um, thanks. And I'm going to ask you for another gift, and please feel free to not talk about it if you don't feel like it. Um, what do, do you, you want me to say? <laughs> please do another show <laughs> and go ahead and tap dance while you're at it I hope you can do it as good as Laurie <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, what what do you wish you and I know you're not that kind of person so I'm asking you this because I feel like it's important to remind me and the rest of us who are quick to to look at these situations and see it so many times that we become immune to it. Um, mm -hmm. 
what do you wish was done for you? Like, what is what are the simple things that you feel like, oh my goodness, if somebody just sat with my child so I can take a shower and just wash my hair once a uh-huh. week? Like, what, what is it that you feel like are the simple things that we can all pitch in as a community and embrace around all these families, whatever their journey is, wherever they are on their journey, what are the simple things we can all do that you wish or that was done for you that meant so much for your family and for you? Well, I will say um, the experts that I dealt with, so the pediatric neurologist, um, the daycare, Jack went to a Mother's Day Out program at a Baptist church um, in te- just near where we lived in Texas. Um, and in both those situations, um, and also like we were signed up for gymnastics, like a, I think it was called Little Gym is where we went for gymnastics. So I was doing all the mom stuff with Jack. Amy was like in um, preschool. So I was doing stuff with him, really enjoying him. Um, but I'll never forget the way we were treated. So like Jack was developing differently. And I remember at little Jim, like he would run up and down, they had just glass windows at the front and he would just run up and down the windows and kind of just run back and forth, back and forth. And when we sat in a circle, you know, he couldn't say his name or anything. Um, and I just remember like the other moms and I really try not to have a chip on my shoulder, but none of them would ever even come near us. It's like we had some contagious disease or something like no one would speak to us just because Jack was really different. And that was my first exposure to feeling that way. Um, and then at his mother's day out, it was one of those mother's day out programs where you get on a wait list when you're pregnant with your child to get them in. Like everybody wanted their kids in this program because it was like the best. And so he, you know, Jack had a spot and he went there just a couple mornings a week. But one day the director, who was very prim and proper and, you know, very Baptist too, she pulled me aside and she said, "Um, I need to speak with you. Um, And I'll never forget the phrase she said to me about Jack. She's like, I feel like he just doesn't belong here. Um, And so she kicked him out of the program. And she didn't say like, I have concerns about his development. Like you should talk to early intervention, nothing like that. She just pushed us out the door. And I remember thinking on top of how I was already feeling like with gymnastics, like I didn't know exactly what was wrong. I didn't know anything about autism. I didn't know anything about early intervention at that time. So again, we were just kind of cast aside without good information. And so if you know, you're running a program with really young children. Um, I know people are very busy, you know, and they've got lots of responsibilities trying to run a business or a childcare, you know, development program, but have some information about early intervention, you know, tell people to talk to their pediatrician, like don't be ashamed or afraid to have those tough conversations. Um, I know um, on the Autism Speaks website, there's some toolkits that talk about having difficult conversations, but I can't help but wonder, you know, if someone had had that with me, first of all, I think just emotionally it would have been easier for me. And then second, I think Jack might've been exposed or had access to services earlier, but we just didn't know. So it was, it was super hard. It it was just hard. So I would say more information is better, um, even though it might be hard to hear. An incredible mom. Um, actually I'm really not I'm pretty some days are good and some days are bad like some days I I mean I yelled at Jack yesterday like he yells at me sometimes too he's 19 now so we yell at each other that's real life like and I don't really cook um but I'm good at doing the dishes so it's really just I was it's funny when people were like, oh my God, you're you're a great mom. I'm like, well, you are. No, I was arguing with a three year old this morning. At least he's 19. You have an excuse. I was yeah. like in a whole match with a three year old who was naked, by the way. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're still mom winning in my book. But um, isn't that the beauty of, of this journey, right? Um, thank you for sharing with us. Judith, I'm curious to hear, and I'm sure, you know, Jack's journey was like 
so different compared to maybe acquiring a diagnosis now. And like, we could go into so many conversations about that and barriers and everything like that. But I am really curious, coming from your perspective as a mom, what things you see that are different now. I'm sure you Mm -hmm. hear about parents acquiring the diagnosis and getting services and everything like that. Mm -hmm. What are your big takeaways? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, um, for CASP, um, Council of Autism Service Providers. I just worked a booth that we had at the American Academy of Pediatrics at their conference. And so I talked with hundreds, it felt like, of pediatricians. Um, and I also went to some of the breakouts around autism diagnosis and breakouts for developmental and behavioral pediatricians, because I'm super interested in that. For us, you know, we did access a diagnosis very quickly. Um, when Jack was two, you know, he was diagnosed within a couple of weeks because he was really so severe. But what happened then was just we fell off a cliff immediately. There were no services and there was real discrimination against an autism diagnosis. Um, so we couldn't, his speech and OT and PT were, the coverage was stopped once they found out he had autism, you know, because he had an autism diagnosis. They're like, well, we're not covering anything because this kid has autism. Um, So now it's quite different. And in talking with pediatricians, we've talked about like, is it appropriate for a pediatrician to diagnose? Do you have to, you know, push out to a multidisciplinary team? Um, I've had conversations with Kristen Soule, who runs the autism subcommittee for the AAP, and she's an amazing pediatrician and really cares about autism. Um, And she was telling me how now, you know, like pediatricians, you know, diagnose many things, ADHD, diabetes, you know, like whatever. But she said autism is that one thing where they're required many times to, you know, refer out to this multidisciplinary, complicated diagnostic process. And it really shouldn't be that way. Like pediatricians can diagnose autism and they have the tools to do it. Um, And there's so many wait lists and things right now that are perpetuated by this bureaucracy Certainly there are kids who are complicated and need referrals and need, you know, um, a heavy duty kind of approach. And certainly kids who are going to be diagnosed by their pediatrician still might need a referral to get ideas about what their treatments should look like and things like that. But you can actually get the diagnosis from a pediatrician. And I think that's so important for parents to know and pediatricians to know too. Um, And you can read about it. In 2020, the AAP put out a publication they updated um, called Managing Autism Spectrum Disorder, and it's really kind of their practice guidelines around diagnosis. So I think that's super important. And then talking with all the pediatricians now versus what it was like back, you know, in the early 2000s when Jack was diagnosed, diagnosed, back when Jack was diagnosed, the only state with an autism insurance law was Indiana. Um, That was it. (laughs) There were no states with autism insurance laws, self-funded companies didn't have coverage other than like Microsoft. Um, And now fast forward, we've passed laws in all 50 states, more than half of the self-funded market has coverage. Um, Things have really changed. So when you talk to pediatricians and diagnosticians, their main concern is around the wait lists for, for ABA services. Um, the ABA is funded now through Medicaid and through health insurance, but we've reached this bottleneck where we're trying to fill the labor workforce gap. We're trying to make sure that we have um, services that meet generally accepted standards of care. So important to get it right. Um, but just the demand is so huge. So it's really different in that back in the day, I was able to get, get a diagnosis, but then it meant, well, you can't get anything. And now it's hard to get a diagnosis and there's like a wait list for services because the demand is so huge. So I hope that, you know, 10 years from now or sooner, um, we can figure out ways to make progress about that because I have been saying for years that I think wait, the word wait is the most profane of the four letter words, you know, when it comes to autism, like Having to wait because of a wait list, because there's no staff, um, because of a pandemic, whatever the reason might be, you can't get that time back. You can't, you know, so I just, anything I can do to change that, I want to. What I really appreciate about about, uh, talking to you is 
getting the family perspective, like the parent perspective. I think that's always been for someone like myself who just came into the field kind of randomly uh, because of a family member that was in the field. Um, you know, I'm pretty distant from those levels, right? I'm, I'm just trying to direct the company in the right direction, making sure I know what's going on, celebrating wins, how to fix logistical problems, those kind of things. But you've always added a perspective that's really important that I have. Um, that's why I love getting, I love the feedback we get from families on how our services are and how things are going. Cause that's the stuff that I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the day to day of those things. So I think when I hear from you and all these stories and how challenging it was, it, it helps me as a provider to make sure that we do the right thing and that kids and um, aren't, aren't, pushed out of programs or eliminated because of things they have. So I think that's what I love about your perspective. And I think that that's a great perspective to continue to have. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I want to ask you is in all the, I know you've, you're very actively involved in a lot of things and you do a lot of great for the community as well. What has been your most um, rewarding thing that you've done for the space or for the, for the autism community? And, and all of your amazing accomplishments that you do, you do a lot through all your careers. What is your most rewarding yeah. that you really love? I am a world-class busybody for sure. <laughs> I'm like the autism busybody. Um, I think for me, the most rewarding thing is time spent on the ground in various state capitals, um, in Atlanta, in Oklahoma city, in Boston, um, you know, in Des Moines, like, and so through the years, I spent a lot of time on the ground in these places and I kind of had a policy where I didn't want to go and have meetings with legislators or regulators without members of the community I was representing because I was coming in from another state, usually from outside. And I had the policy expertise um, and I love talking to legislators. I love, I, it, I'm doing what I love for sure. You know, I love um, just connecting with them no matter um, they're what party they're in. Like, I, I just love doing that. But for me, doing that with self-advocates, with fellow parents, with providers like you guys, um, we've built relationships that are so deep because those battles were so tough. I mean, you know, in Georgia, the fight to pass Ava's law went on for just about 10 years in Michigan. It was like 11 years working on trying to get, um, it passed Iowa. You know, we worked for many, many, many years. Um, and there are so many years that are heartbreaking. Um, so when you finally, um, succeed, um, and then you start working on implementation and you have people complaining about bureaucracy and paperwork rather than just being completely denied, um, because there's no, there's no law to protect them. The people who have been there, and it's usually just a handful, honestly, in a state, it's not like you have thousands of people getting a law passed. It's usually three or four people that are consistently part of the hearings, the office visits, you know, making sure the grassroots are reaching out. Like it's usually just a handful of people. Those people have really become my brothers and sisters in this effort, you know? And so I feel... Like I have beloved friendships um, and bonds that can never be broken because we, you know, just didn't give up and we connected. So for me personally, that's been the most rewarding thing. Um, and to now, I think too, just seeing like my kids growing up, you know, they've been part of it too. They've been advocating both in their own way to see them doing that too. Yeah. I just... It's the best. I think it's important for us providers that are now standing on the shoulders of the ones who came before us to remember. Yeah, it seems hard now. It seems ridiculous that we do get denied for little things or partial denials or whatever we get. But before there was nothing, could even get anything. I think we yeah. forget that. It's good to remember that the yeah. before us had it way harder, but it is still annoying that we have to deal with those things, but it's totally annoying. Like you're, <laughs> it, but it, it's at least really we have something at least forget. And it. the, the right. test for us to even like, to realize we can do something about it. Yeah. So it, like the Judiths, the Mikes, again, the Lorries, yeah. they saw it all, like all these moms who, are kicking butt for all of us, right? Yeah. Um, and Judith, outside of being super mom to Jack and 
um your daughter's name is a is it amy amy yeah amy um and like all the things she does she's like zipping across state lines mm-hmm. every time i hear her like i see a feed from her she's in this state and she's in that state i don't even know how she does it and she's working at cast and she's talking at this conference she's all over the place and yet she's always so fashionably dressed with a smile on her face <laughs> i got my running clothes on right now i changed my top but i mean up top like, that's, that's pretty very fashionable, running clothes. <laughs> very fashionable. Um, yeah. so tell us about jude i want to hear about just you judith what what do you like to do as a person when you're not being a mom when you're not mm-hmm. like you're just being you back in college days like what were you known oh, for what's your thing <laughs> like Debbie Downer like I worked my way through college I graduated when I was 26 because I worked my way through like it was not easy um so and um so I didn't have a lot of time to like party or do anything like that in college. And plus I was raised in Texas in a very kind of conservative um, community. So I never, I do not have a wild streak, which you probably can tell. Like um, I remember in high school, my government teacher used to call me the chairman of the board and the board was B-O-R-E-D. Um, Cause I just, you know, was never much of a, a partier. But um, I love to be outside in nature. Um, I love where I live now. I live, um, I'm a Texan at heart, always will be. And I get back there as soon as I can. But I live outside of Boston now and it's so beautiful. And um, we've lived here for like 15 years. So I love to get out and go running. I love to go running um, with Jack. Um, you know, we go out running together pretty regularly and I try to run a lot. So exercise means a lot to me. Sleep means a lot to me. I think. Um, the older I get, the more I think about sleep, um, but just trying to good, take good care of my body and my mind. I will say my daughter um, graduated from college last year and she's working as a clinical researcher um, and she's doing lots of different research. So I went in as a control in one of her studies and they did an MRI of my brain um, and they did a lot of other stuff too, but she now has a video of my brain on her phone, which is so cool. And you can hear the other clinical researchers talking about my brain in the video. And they all said my brain looked really young. So that made me feel really good. I'm like, yes. Okay. Yes, young so, brain. <laughs> uh, I think sleep is super important. And, you know, just um, trying to take care of your body and your mind if you're trying to good, do good things in the world. So I, I really try. Um because of all the other things I like to do, I try to like exercise and sleep, um, eat right, um, feed my mind. I love to listen to podcasts like this one and many others. Um, Can you give I us love- an example, Judith? <laughs> oh, like a podcast of them. <laughs> so, let's see. Right now, um, I really I love to listen to the daily. Um, I listen to the daily a lot just to you know, keep up with current events. Um, the Texas Tribune has a daily briefing podcast that I listen to. It's like five minutes long because I'm just a Texan at heart, even though I live in Boston, I want to know what's going on in Texas. Um, so I listen to that a lot. Um, I also like to listen to audiobooks. So like right now I'm listening to, um, to Celeste Ning's most recent book. She also wrote Little Fires Everywhere, and everything I never told you. So, and she's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not far from me. So one thing I avoid are autism books and autism movies. I don't care for them at all. Cause I feel like I live with autism and my family and there, there's darkness and light with that. And then with my job, I'm all consumed, you know, with autism services and the autism community. And so I like to watch things like severance right now. I'm watching succession, which is really good. Um, but there was, um, a mini series about autism or a limited series that I loved on um, Netflix or prime. I can't remember. I think it was prime, um, called as we see it. And so I would say, if you watch anything related to autism, watch that as we see it, it was by Jason. Oh, I can't remember his last name, but he did Friday Night Lights and he did Parenthood. Like he's done some great things, but as we see it so good, I really feel like it gives, um, a great representation of 
the constellation that is autism. Success and the actors, actors are autistic too, which is so cool. Succession yeah. is my ringtone right now. I love Succession. <laughs> oh my God. Hallie's Callie calling me out in the chat. Of course you love Succession. Of course I do. Oh, it's a surprise. It's so on brand. For it's you. so on brand. I love it. It's so much drama. It's so ridiculous. It is. But by no, the no, way, no. Severance is ridiculous too. I, 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 a couple of weeks ago pulled like, I love Severance. I pulled like a couple of like 80 to 100 hour weeks, which is a lot of craziness with all the changes going on. And one of my friends is like, hey, you should watch, um, severance and i was like okay and i was in the plane coming home from like a hundred hour a week and i was like why i just lived this why am i watching this? i know, I know. Like dumbest thing i've ever watched like i need to watch something that's happy not yes not more ridiculous misery you know i know i, was like, I know time ever to watch that show <laughs> it's so good though i loved severance i thought it was so good um and i was so bitter because at the emmys like succession was like winning everything over severance or, you know, and I was like, Oh man. But then I was like, well, let me watch succession and see what the big deal is. And I got totally sucked in. And now my husband is totally sucked in too. So it's, you know, some, some, some escape, you know, that we can do together. Um, that is not, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just an escape and it's fun. Love it. Oh, what about Scandalous podcasts? Oh my gosh. I, you know, sometimes I'll, I, I mentioned the, the South Lake podcast that really was an interesting one. It's about, it was done by NBC News and it's about um, the community there and kind of their response to critical race theory um, and their rejection of it. Um, and I will say too, it really kind of resonated with me. When Jack was um, three, we went into the special education system at Carroll ISD, which is South Lake. Um, and keep in mind, like when he went through early intervention, they did, um, a test on him called the childhood autism rating scale, the cars evaluation. And he scored a 59 out of 60. So he was really almost as severe as you can get, you know, in evaluating for autism. When he went into the IEP process at Carroll ISD at Southlake, um, they said he didn't have autism. <laughs> so... Um, and he very obviously is autistic, but what we didn't know at the time was um, the Texas Education Association had a cap um, and only seven and a half percent of students in the state could be identified as being um, qualified for special education. So they were doing everything they could to keep people out. Um, and so Jack was one of those kids um, and he really is severely disabled. And so we ended up, we hired an attorney and, you know, pursued trying to get him services through the school system. But here's the quandary, like you have to think about your resources and hiring an attorney is really expensive. Um, and at the time there was no insurance coverage um, for speech, OT, PT, and ABA, all the things our pediatrician had told us, like, you have to get on this, like, right now. So we chose to pull him out of the public school program and place him um, in an ABA-based preschool in Grapevine, Texas, not far from where we lived. And we paid $3,000 a month for that. Um, and it wasn't even one-on-one. -on -one. Like, he was in a group setting for ABA, which didn't really work for what he needed. Um, but those were the times, but it was terrible. It was really terrible. So listening to the podcast about Southlake and the things they did to students who were different, um, who were a different color or, you know, who had different, um, gender identities, like a lot of that stuff they're dealing with right now. It really made me think about the kids on IEPs in Southlake too, because we were one of those that was just pushed out. And I think about the people who were sitting around the table at the IEP meetings. And so obviously Jack desperately needed care and they just didn't care. Like they, my daughter, like I remember like she was doing quest testing and she was like gifted and it was all about her. And then I felt like they just slammed the doors in Jack's face. He was not going to be one of those golden, you know, overachieving typical students. He was going to excel in different ways that they weren't interested in. So 
anyway, <laughs> sorry to go off on a tangent, but um, the South Lake podcast kind of doesn't talk much about um, special ed, but I think in just listening to it, it's sort of a slice of America right now where there's just a lot of, there's a lack of connection in the communities about what's needed. Judith, um, I all along when you're talking about your journey and your experience and how you felt like the other or felt like people are looking like that whole feeling like there's something wrong with you or you, you, you're in a space. You just want to like choke me now. Cause I'm like, I'm the little white girl sitting here saying that too. Ridiculous. <laughs> no, no, it's not ridiculous. It's, it's great to hear that from a different perspective. I'm like, wow. Very, nah, you're probably like <laughs> over yourself. Come on. No, no. It's that whole experience of when you don't fit like a society's construct, when yeah. you don't fit a space that, people that feel like you're not in the norm for it, how that same thing can translate. And usually when we are talking about like things like critical race theory or whatever, race and justice, we can narrow it down to just skin color, right? It's so quick to narrow it down, but it's really about human experience. It's about feeling human. It's about feeling like you matter too, to have the nerve to take your son to the little gym, even though they can tumble. It's about feeling like you have the nerve to love your son enough to ride what, wherever you want to go, Six Flags, wherever you want, for him to curse like every other child curses like at the grocery <laughs> store, right? For him yeah. to love Kanye like every other teenager, oh right? <laughs> for you, it, it's about the audacity. On one more time, I'm just <laughs> going to make it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> love it all. Um, it's about like that whole idea of having the audacity and and the right to live the life you want to and for your child to live that life too that I feel confronted with literally every day as I navigate the world um, in, in, in good, bad, in different ways, right? And as we, as we go forward in the world, as we gather with family and who we identify with as family, right? It's easy to see those people, but then when we're in situations where we don't like the situation or we don't like the other person or when it's other or them, it's easy to lose that human peace and forget that those people are humans too. And we all just want the same things in life yeah. at the end of the day. And just yeah. like hearing you say that, just like clicked that for me in such a beautiful way. So thank you. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I used to just coming from a, a kind of traumatic background, I used to think like when I can get to this point, when I can get to my degree, when I can have my own family, you know, I'll reach this point of being content and at peace, like this is what I need. Um, and then I got totally knocked on my butt, you know, cause that's how life is. Um, and so what I've learned is the feeling of peace and contentment is in the living and the doing, it's not a destination. Like, and so sometimes you're going through really devastating times. You're burying someone you love. You're getting a diagnosis that you don't know what, how you're going to deal with. You're, um, dealing with substance use issues or, or just whatever might pop into your life. We all have those things to deal with. For me, you know, the biggest teacher has been, you know, living with someone who struggles with severe intellectual disability and OCD and autism. Like he really um, struggles. He's going through a very difficult time right now with severe self-injury of his tongue um, which is something that's rare, but, you know, we're watching him. He's lost 20 pounds in the last few months because he's struggling to eat. And so these are the quandaries, the things, you know, the people that care, everyone can talk about acceptance or they can talk about interventions or whatever. Um, there's still spaces where there are no answers. And so I've had to learn to be square with that rather than think like, okay, I'm going to get to a point where I'm just driving my BMW and my life is good. You know, that's not life. It's um, a constant um, journey of learning and sorrow and joy in any given day. Um, but that's the richness of it. So I now have reached the point where I just want to, with the time that I have, um, try to do what I can to leave things better than I found them, you know, and that's just pretty much it. And as my daughter 
as she, you know, is in her twenties and is looking forward to like what she wants to do. That's always kind of where we leave things is just figure out something you can do that you really feel in your heart. If you want to buy shoes, you know, keep that in mind. So you need a job where you can buy shoes, but you know, always leave things better than you found them. So that's what I'm trying to do. Um, Judith, can you talk a little bit about, um, I mean, I think we know your role at CASP and everything like that, but can you talk about like what you do for CASP and what that looks like? Oh yeah. Um, so I am so excited. CASP has been around for a long time and it brings together people who really know what they're doing. Um, and they share information with each other. It's all about collaboration, um, for autism service providers, Um, But one space that's been really, you know, empty has been being a voice with federal and state um, legislators, with regulators, just ensuring that quality services are funded appropriately, um, that service providers can actually do what they need to do to deliver services um, with the support of the education system, the healthcare system, the community. And so CASP really, really needed um, an advocacy effort that's targeted um, and supportive of autism service providers, and that also collaborates with the rest of the autism community. So that is my job. I really want to make sure that we have a seat at the table, um, whether it's on the federal level, um, meeting with legislators there who serve on the relevant committees specific to healthcare and education, TRICARE, all those things. Um, that relate to providing autism services. And then on the state level, you know, we have all the state autism insurance laws. We have a lot of stuff going on around special education, home and community-based services for adults. Um, And then um, Medicaid is such a huge issue. I feel like providers are struggling to get appropriate rates um, and trying to figure out how to ethically advocate to be paid appropriately so they can serve the autism community in the way that they need to. Um, So that is mainly what I do. The other big thing that I could talk to you for hours about are the practice guidelines. So we are currently updating the practice guidelines for applied behavior analysis. They used to live at the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, and they came over to CASP a few years ago. Um, And the reason they did is CASP is a nonprofit trade association. And so nonprofit trade associations, according to a lot of different state legislation and regulation, they're the place where generally accepted standards of care should sit. So we're updating the practice guidelines right now. Um, We're making sure that departments of insurance, like for example, in California, I just testified a couple of weeks ago because our practice guidelines Um, are being adopted in California by the Department of Insurance as the generally accepted standard of care for ABA. So I want that to happen in every state. I'm talking to federal officials to make that happen in the autism care demonstration for TRICARE. So it's interesting how the practice guidelines work um, kind of dovetails with the advocacy work. It's so important that all the funding that we fought so hard for fund services that work, (laughs) that are done the right way. Um, And so I'm kind of the person who's organizing that with the practice guidelines. Obviously I'm not a BCBA, so I have amazing people like Jane Howard and Bridget Taylor um, and others, you know, working to write the content. And then we have legal experts, medical experts, all the important, really highly educated people working on these projects. So Clinical guidelines for ABA are in the mix now. We're talking about trying to do those for special education, which I know, now you and I have talked about before. That's a big project I'd like to do. Um, and then we're also talking about potentially doing them just for autism diagnosis, um, clinical practice guidelines for diagnosis. Um, there are guidelines with the AAP, um, but there are lots of different people in the autism diagnosis space when you think about it. You've got pediatricians, but you also have adults who are being diagnosed with autism. And, you know, you have psychologists and others. So um, we're talking about trying to bring those people together to make sure that diagnosis is being done appropriately um, and timely. So anyway, I don't know how to answer things in a short way because I get super excited. I could 
talk all day about the work that we're doing. It's and we could it's so important. <laughs> well, we could listen to you all day, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I know you guys have a lot of other stuff to do, so you've been very kind in listening. But oh, we love it. We um, love yeah, I love what we're doing at CAS. We do have um, meetings, you know, for the states every month or so. Like we'll have the Texas meeting. Now we're having our Pennsylvania meeting this week for the first time. Um, so our states have meetings where we can get together. In California, they meet every week and just talk about what's going on in California that week. So it depends on the state and how often they want to meet, you know, when there are things going on. And just that collaboration means so much. And we also collaborate with others. It's not just us, we, we definitely huddle as cast members, but when you advocate, you got to advocate with everyone. And so I, I think that's super important. We, you know, when we have shared interests and goals, um, we work together to get things done. So the sky is the limit. We've got a lot of work to do. I, I love that perspective um, that you bring in and that really centers cast for me, um, the idea that you don't come in and say, oh, we are the experts, we know it all. It's oh. wrapping your hand around the community, wherever they are, and journeying alongside instead. Oh, yeah, for sure. I live in Boston. Um, and as I've said before, like, I'm from Austin. And, like, the worlds are so different. The political worlds, the service delivery, just the situation there, you know, our challenges in all settings, but they can be really different. So you can't stomp in and say, oh, I know, this is what you need to do. We have to listen. Um, we do have to prioritize. Um, I don't know if we ever get through one of these episodes without quoting Brene Brown, but she said something <laughs> that I've been saying a lot lately, which is if you have more than three priorities, you have no priorities. And so I'm really trying to remind myself of that rolling into 2023, like trying to reduce meetings, um, trying to like have more time to actually work. I know you guys probably, you guys probably feel that too. Um, and really think about what my priorities are um, working with the cast community so we can actually accomplish things moving forward. I think we just keep manifesting Brene Brown yeah. as a guest. <laughs> well, she's a Texan, so, you know. She is. Brene, if you're listening, please join us. Yeah. <laughs> you can come. Um, Judith will be the host that day. She'll do the interview. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Jonathan. I think Jonathan is much more of a fanboy than any of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about podcasts, though, so I listen to Brene sometimes. I've kind of been off a little bit late, lately. I need to catch up. Um, but I definitely love Armchair Expert, Dak Shepard, like yes. all kinds of guests. That's really, that's yes. another one of my podcasts I love. Yeah. Um, should, what did we call these hot take? Uh, I keep, I forget the popcorn. Popcorn, rapid yeah. fire questions. Rapid fire, rapid fire. Every time I want to change. Popcorns. Yeah. I want to change them though, because Judith, I feel like you've answered the usual ones as we've okay. gone through a little bit. Um, except for you're so, um, I mean, I feel like I, I knew you, but this, like I've learned different things about you. And I think one of the last things you said about like being square with it is like your personality at its core, because I, you know, like hearing everything that you've been through and, you know, I kind of sit back and I'm like, she's so calm and, you know, like not stressed and just kind of very Zen with yeah. it. So yeah. I feel like at the core, that's what you are. You're, you're square with it and you're so genuine um, that I can't really think of a pet peeve that you do have, but I feel like maybe there is one in there and I want to know what it is. Oh my gosh. Pet peeve. Um, wow. That's hard. I have pet peeves. I know I do. Oh gosh. I can't think of anything. And I know I have them. I should be prepared for this. Um, I don't like it when my, um, sleeve of my arm gets wet or my socks get wet. That's my pet peeve. That has nothing to do with being calm, but I don't like that. Um, I think the calm, I'll just say quickly, I come from a family that's very like loud and like, you know, big tempers and a lot of drama. And so I think for me, that kind of the response to that, that I felt it worked was to stay calm and just work through it. So, and then it's interesting that I ended up having a kid like Jack, cause he's not calm at all. Like he's, you know, definitely 
you know, always giving me a run for the money, but I'm prepared for him because my family is very loud. So I'll just say very quickly too, we were on, we went to New York this weekend for an autism friendly show at Lincoln Center, which was beautiful. And we were riding the train back home and um, the Amtrak Acela now has reserved seating, which is great. So we can all sit together and we know where we're going to sit, which is great. What we didn't realize was that our seats were in the quiet car. And so the conductor came and told us, like, you have to be quiet. This is the quiet car. You know, he lectured us and we're like, oh, my God. Um, So we were like, oh, this is going to be really hard. But um, we made it. So I think, you know, Jack is capable of toning it down. We also, you know, told the conductor, like, we're doing the best we can. And there's no place to go because the train is full. So anyway. I'm sure he got over himself. (laughs) That was stressful. I was saying earlier, it sounds like your siblings were only like practice round for Jack. So you were all ready for him. Yeah, sure. Um, What, if you were going to write a book um, about yourself, what would it be? What would it be? Oh my gosh. I have a title already. It's called The Book of Jude. Uh, You know, um, that's the title. Um, oh, and oh, I always oh, thought if I wrote the book, like people wouldn't believe it. They'll be like, that did not happen, but it did. Cause my family, like, if you think of anything possible, it has happened in my family, I feel like. So, um, that would be the title. But I think, um, the theme though is love. Like, you know, it's, I think our families, like, if we're honest, none of us are really perfect. We got a lot of dysfunction going on. Um, but love keeps us together and sees us through. So. Anyway, Book of Jude, one of these days. And then I'm going to sell it to like Netflix and, yes. you know, all that. Yeah. Anyway. If you could get like a day tomorrow off from anything you're responsible for all the day to day, putting moms out in the front yard and all that crap, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. If you could wake up one day with zero responsibilities, you only do what you what you want to do, what would that be? What would the day look like? Oh, just be quiet, eat a good meal that I don't have to make, you know, dishes that I don't have to do. Um, just wear my sweatpants and a t-shirt, you know, go for a walk. Um, it's really beautiful where we live. So hopefully this would be like in the spring or summer. So it's not too cold. Smell the lilacs. I love it when they're blooming. Um, those are the things that make me happy. Wow. Wishing you a lot of that. Yeah. I have um, maybe our last question because I am genuinely, well, we've gotten to see clips of or snippets of Jack just through like podcasts, meetings, recordings, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about what your favorite thing is about Jack and Amy because <laughs> I know you're, you have a, a, a mom heart too. So, yeah. I just, Jack has a sparkle in his eyes and he's, you know, very severely affected by autism. You know, I don't have like magical thinking like, oh my, you know, he's going to be typing poetry or whatever. Like, that's not the kind of person he is. He's a dude. Um, I can tell like when he gets annoyed, I can tell when he thinks things are funny. Um, You know, he listens to music that is very um, typical for his peers and like sometimes annoying. Like when we were in the quiet car last night, he kept listening to Kanye and like, I was like, Oh my God, we're supposed to be in the quiet car. Um, but what's so cool about Jack is even though we don't exchange sentences with communication or anything like that, I've always felt super connected to him. Um, just from the time he was born, Um, I feel like we have an unspoken conversation every day and it's just made up with just kind of looking at each other and being real with each other. He's very authentic and real. There's nothing fake about him. Um, And so he makes me more that way too. So that's what I love about him. He's just, just the coolest, just the coolest. And then Amy, Oh my gosh. (laughs) So she's like a million times smarter than I could ever hope to be, which is really cool. Like when you have kids and they're like really smart and you're like, Oh my God, thank God they're smarter than me. I'm so glad. Um, she's very smart. Um, she's beautiful. 
um, and she's very kind. So she wants to um, make the world better genuinely. And so she works diligently. Like right now she's doing clinical research and it's so fun to hear her talking about how interesting her patients are, talking about with them with compassion when she's talking about the pain they're experiencing. Um, and then also just laughing, you know, about the funny things they do. Like she really cares about the people that she's working with. So I love seeing that with her. Like she um, is going to use that brain of hers to help people. So that makes me super, super proud of her. And she's just fun. Like she and I are so much alike, you know, we can finish each other's sentences. So that's, it's just fun to have her. She's a blessing, a big blessing. Well, Judith, thank you so much for sharing everything. Like I said, I um, knew you and now I feel like I know you. Know I know. You. I think we went way too long too. Does I know? We always cares. do. I tell you guys. Rules. <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Um, and thank you for doing the podcast. I think it's so important um, that we get this good information out there. And I'm excited for 2023 and all the things we're going to talk about. We have a lot to do. We do. We do lots of things.